Good morning. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm grateful to be here. It's good fun. Uh, it's nice for me to be back in <clears throat> wooded areas. Uh, for me, I'm not a huge city person. I, I was telling somebody this morning, uh, I don't know who it was anymore, I don't know your names, but that Spokane is by far the largest English-speaking city I've ever lived in. It's only maybe 300,000 people or so, but uh, before that, I was in St. Andrews, Scotland. That was 14,000 people. That was by far the largest English-speaking town I'd ever lived in. Before that, the largest place I'd ever lived was my hometown of Mazeppa, Minnesota, which is about 600 people. And I've been able to travel, you know, some various places, um, but have always only ever been in very rural contexts. I grew up in the woods like this. My chores were to chop wood, you know, to restart the fire after I got home from school that day. So for me, it's, it's good, it's good, it's refreshing to be in this environment. Um, I also attended a Christian youth camp from the age of, I don't know, like seven or eight until through my college years. And I always wanted to, or thought it would be awesome to come back and to be like the chapel speaker for the week. I still haven't been invited to do so, but the fact that we're calling this pastor camp is quite fun. I feel like I'm finally the, the chapel speaker for, for camp week, um, but you're not quite the campers I imagined <laughs> ever speaking to. Um, are we able to put up the main screen? Go up? Nope. That's, that's my nephew. <laughs> Cashton, he's pretty cute though, right? It's on on my screen, just like it is meant to be. I've done my part. Uh, I see my home screen on the confidence screen or what that thing is called down there. <laughs> Buy into a brand name? No. <laughs> I'll introduce you to the topic. Um, what I'll be speaking on uh, the next four days or three days now with you is the topic that I spent my time researching for the PhD that I did in Scotland. And uh, most PhDs are focused on, you know, a word or a very random topic that really nobody cares about, except for that person and maybe a handful of people around them who read and study the same thing. Otherwise, they get put into a book format, you know, stuck onto a shelf in a series that nobody ever really goes to find. Yeah. When I went to Scotland to do the PhD, well done, Michael. Thank you. When I went to Scotland to do the PhD, the one kind of main thing that I wanted to make sure I was doing was to research something that was important for the church. Um, I had, between seminary at Gordon-Conwell and then going to do the PhD, I had gone to um, a town called Cook City, Montana, which is about 100 people um, who live there year-round. It's just outside of Yellowstone. And I pastored the church there for two years. And during those two years, you, for the most part, don't go further than half a mile distance or a one-mile distance because you're literally in the mountains. So two years feels more like five or six years um, because you see the same 50 faces day after day after day because the other 50 live in the mountains. They don't want to see you. Uh, yeah. Um, and as I went to Scotland then, what I had in mind were these people at this church, this very rural context, these people who, uh, for the most part, had high school diplomas, who loved the Lord, and that was it. They, they loved the Lord, they wanted to be strong Christians, but you know, they're, they're working hospitality jobs, they're uh, waitressing, they're um, already retired and just enjoying you know, the, the mountains in which they lived. So I wanted the PhD to be something useful, something important for the church. So that combined with the things that I had already started to love at seminary, thanks to Carol Kaminsky in part. Um, I'm so excited that you guys get to have her back again. I'm excited that you had her here. Um, she is one of my heroes. As far as you know, female 
theologians, biblical scholars, so wonderful. She introduced me to the narrative of the Old Testament in a way that I'd never experienced before, and in part is what led me then to think about biblical theology in a whole new way. Um, so I wanted it to be a relevant topic for the church, and I wanted it to be biblical theology, something that said the Bible is much larger than you know, these random words that we can focus on. And then somehow in the course of you know, figuring out outlines and a proposal, all of that, I landed on a verse where I looked at six words <laughs> in the verse, one-third of a verse, right? Romans 8.29, for we know that God, uh, well, 8.28, in fact, let me show it to you. Context, we know that God works all things for good uh, for those who love him, for those who are um, called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many children. For those whom God predestined, he called, he called, he justified, justified, glorified. And within that then, ask the question, this is all fine and dandy, but what does it mean to be conformed to the image of God's son? And as I started reading commentaries, they all essentially said the exact same thing. We will be like Christ. Isn't it wonderful that one day we will be made like Christ? We want to be like Christ. We get to be made like Christ. We're trying to be like Christ. And I think, yes, that is wonderful. But what the heck does it mean? And then as you do read through the commentaries and things that are written on it, the things that people do say really are through a wide variety of options. So for some, it's about being uh, morally upright, sanctified, pure, holy, right? Whatever word you want to put into that category. Um, that's what it means to be like Christ. For others, it means to suffer with Christ. Uh, for others, it means to have a resurrected physical body, and enter into that new physical life like Christ did. Um, and so the commentators are all over the board, but most of the time what they do is they take all of the above and kind of jam it together and say all of this is what it means to be like Christ. As I began reading through and saying, okay, let's look at this within the context of Romans, and especially this context, right? Each of us probably come from well, each of you come from Reformed backgrounds for the most part, which means that wherever you did your education, you learned that context is king, and you were taught a grammatical historical approach to reading the text, and as was I. So as we go through, and as I take you through, if this gets boring, you can blame our own tradition <laughs> for that very focused hermeneutical approach to understanding what the text is all about. In order to know what 829 is, we look at the context. And as we break it down, this is essentially what we get. Paul is saying the same things, but in different ways. He is equating called within the context of foreknew and predestined, predestined, called, justified, right? All of that, which is what we spend most of our time talking about, um, especially in reform circles, foreknown, predestined, predestination, we get caught up on these words, they are essentially in parallel with God's purpose. And God's purpose is to be conformed to the image of the Son. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means to be glorified. Well, what does that mean? And then we can think of uh, culture. How do we think about glory or glorification in our culture? If you go out onto the street, and I've done this, it's a, it's a fantastic experiment, just go out onto the street and ask any people or into a church. What does it mean to be glorified? We're all looking forward to glory someday. We think about it. It's in every single hymn, in that hymn book in front of you. Uh, you can basically find the word glory in every hymn. But what does it mean? We're looking forward to being glorified. We're looking forward to our, our final glory. And I think it's like gospel. It's like salvation. It's like justification. It's like many of the words that we throw around as Christians, but don't actually 
really stop and think about what we're saying, what they actually mean. When somebody asks us to define them, we say, mm, uh, well, Jesus. <laughs> Glory is the same way. So we ask then what it means to be glorified. This is what most people will suggest. What's the main theme there? Light. Light. Splendor. Radiance. Brilliance. So we have this idea that we're going to be in heaven, wherever heaven is, um, but not so much shining like light bulbs, but somehow reflecting the glorious splendor of God, somehow uh, radiating light. That glory becomes light. Um, and that was just a, a screenshot from a Google Images search, glory. Look at images. And that's what it is, through and through and through and through. When we think about language, um, especially with the Old Testament, we think about, well, we should think about how language functions. The two main ways that language functions on a very broad spectrum is literal and figurative, right? And we encounter this when we think about how do we interpret revelation? Do we interpret it literally or do we interpret it figuratively? It's the same idea for much of the Old Testament, especially when we have things like the Psalms that are talking about God and how God interacts with the world around him. Within that kind of figurative language, then it's two different ways of understanding. Well, not two different, but two of the main ways would be through metaphor and metonymy. Now, of course, metaphor is when we say this thing is kind of uh, equal to another thing, just a different way of saying it. Metonymy is more about one thing kind of represents something else, much larger than itself. It's pointing to the thing behind it. Um, so the crown, the crown decided that X is the case. In a British context, that means more than Queen Elizabeth. That means the entire government behind her, right? It's not just the crown that she wears, but this thing that that's representing. Same idea in the Hebrew Bible. So as we go and look at glory and glorification, those are kind of two ways that we're going to think about it, how language functions. So here's where we're going. Um, today, I am going to walk us through the Hebrew Bible. Because if we're asking the question, what does Paul mean by being glorified and receiving glory? In Romans 5, 2, he'll say, we have the hope of glory, and our hope is glory. What does that mean? What did Paul mean by that? Paul is going to have two main contexts. He has the Hebrew Bible as his context, and he has the Roman Empire around him as a context. And at least what I discovered is that the way that the Hebrew Bible and the Roman Empire think of glory is very different than how you and I have been trained to think about our eternal glory. A little fun. Uh, Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. Humpty Dumpty says, there's glory for you. And Alice says, I don't know what you mean by glory. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, till I tell you. I meant there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use the word glory, Humpty Dumpty said in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That is all. It's a good example of how language functions. Humpty Dumpty recognizes that language functions in many different ways. Alice thinks that a word should either work here, in this way over here, and this way over there. But Humpty Dumpty recognizes that circumstances change everything. You have denotation and you have connotation. And so not, no matter where you go and in what circumstances you have, a word can connote many other things. 
So it's a good, good example of, of what's going to go on with glory, especially in the Old Testament. The word kavot is the Hebrew word for glory in the Hebrew Bible. Many of you will remember from your uh, Old Testament studies, Hebrew Bible studies at seminary. Kavod literally means something that is weighty, um, physically heavy, weighty. Um, and what we need to recognize is that in the Hebrew Bible, kavod then connotes many other things. So the word that means weighty is going to be the same word that represents the glory of God that dwells and descends into the temple. Right? It's the same word, but two very different ways of understanding it. When we go to the Greek translation, the Septuagint, the same thing happens, except now we have the word doxa, glory. In the Hebrew Bible, three main ways of understanding it. We're going to compare this with doxa. Kavod refers to a person's uh, status or honor. It refers to the theophanic revelation of God, right? God making himself known in theophany, the visible splendor of God that Moses then will see and reflect on his face. The third one is when he reveals himself, he does so through these manifestations of power, of salvation, of judgment. So an earthquake can be a sign of God's glory, his power being revealed. Okay, so that's how kavod primarily gets used. Glory and glorify in the Septuagint translation of that is very similar. Um, an honor or status associated with a person's power, character, wealth. It becomes a title for God himself and it can be splendor or beauty, something that's not symbolizing uh, a status of honor or uh, um, a status of honor, yeah. Doxazo, which is going to be the word we're going to care most about because of what Paul will do in Romans when he talks about being glorified. Doxazo for humans is giving or according that status of honor, authority, power, or and making radiant or splendid or beautiful. As I went through, part of my research was to essentially take every single word, every single time doxa or doxazo was used in the Septuagint, so it's going to be Hebrew Bible as well as apocryphal literature, and essentially categorize it into a, a lexicon of sorts, my own kind of created lexicon. Don't be put off by all that's on this slide. What I want you to see is the big picture. Don't worry about the details. I want you to see how we can take this definition and we can see how it then gets used when it's connoting things or when it's broken down into kind of its, its sub-definitions. It's the same thing that any lexicon will do. If you take out Bideg, Lo and Nida, any of the commentaries you might have on your shelves, they do the same thing, right? 1A, 1B, 1C, that type of thing. I've simply put it into a table context or format. What we see there then, this is just for God in this case. A title for God, and then as glory or uh, honor, status, power, or character. When it's for God, it can be given in ascription to God. It can be possessed by God. It can be, and it might be too small to read there, it can be manifested in signs or symbols. In other words, these, uh, these examples of, of God's power being demonstrated in the world, right? Lightning, thunder, earthquakes, those types of things. And then it can be God being manifested in theophany, right? So the idea of God revealing himself in Moses, reflecting then the glory of God. This is how it gets applied to God in the uh, Greek Old Testament. Four conclusions um, that I want us to draw from this before we look on what it means for humans. The first thing is that even for God, glory is not primarily about splendor or radiance or brilliance. 
It is certainly there, but it's not in the words of Humpty Dumpty, master. Glory is used even for God in many other ways. And we even can think, when we look at his manifest presence, we need to then question, well, what does it mean? So take an example, um, Psalm 107.6. What does it mean? Uh, sorry, I have it written down here. Mm. Let me back up. I won't go to that one yet. Let's go to uh, one example. At the under given to God in description, Joshua 7, 15, 7, 19. And Joshua said to Achar, give glory today to the Lord. Sorry, my uh, things are screwed up. Bummer. It's an older version. Okay, listen. Joshua 7, 19. Give glory today to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make the confession. Tell me what you have done and do not hide it from me. Okay, God possessing glory. From you are riches and honor. You rule over all, Lord, the ruler of all rule, and in your hand are strength and dominance. And it's in your hand to make all things great and strong. When it's manifested in signs and symbols, it's kind of third category under glory and honor there. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, glorified among holy ones, awesome in glory, doing wonders, signs, and deeds? Psalm 107, 6. Be exalted to the heavens, O God, and over all the earth your glory. So the question then that I was going to ask, what is God's glory over all the heavens. Think of that particular verse. We read it and we think, yay, God is good. He is, his glory is above the heavens. Maybe he lives up in the heavens. Uh, or what? Is the reader meant to envision something like the sun's rays being cast out over all the heavens? The sun does that. Is that what it means for God's glory to be over the heavens? That there's literally this idea of light being spread out. I think in the same way that when it says uh, your mercy is above the heavens in the previous verse and your truth is unto the clouds in the preceding verse, God's glory is over the earth. It means that all the earth will recognize this part of who God is. It will recognize the status of God in the same way that it can recognize the mercy of God or the grace of God. Second thing, so the first one is that it's not just God's manifest presence. The second thing is that it's commonly associated with his status or his identity as king. One of the main metaphors for understanding who God is in the Old Testament is king. Uh, Richard Bauckham would argue that there are essentially two, king and creator. So that when you're reading through the Old Testament, God is king, God is creator. God is king, God is creator. And he does many things, but they're always brought back to this idea that he is king and creator. So 1 Chronicles 16.27, glory and commendation are before him, strength and boasting in his place. Let the sky be glad and the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations that the Lord is king. Psalm 23, 7, raise the gates, O rulers of yours, and be raised up, O perpetual gates, that the king of glory shall enter. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and powerful. The Lord, powerful in battle. Raise the gates, O rulers of yours, and be raised up, O perpetual gates, and the king of glory shall enter. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So when, and this is just an example of many of these different texts, when glory is applied or ascribed to God as something it's ascribed or that he possesses, it is almost always in his context as king. The third thing, we think of this kind of more technical phrase, the glory of the Lord. So the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
The glory of the Lord uh, went behind the mountain. Those types of things. The glory of the Lord. Nine times out of ten, if you look at those texts, commentators will say something to the effect of, it is the manifest presence in theophany of God. But for the most part, those texts are spread throughout these four categories. You can't quite see it up here, but I have asterisks next to many of the different verses. And they're fairly even throughout the four uh, columns under glory as honor. In other words, that technical term, the glory of the Lord, um, kavod el or kavod yava, or in the Greek, Doxa uh, it's not just this visible manifestation of the presence of God. It's not just God's radiance or splendor. It is many of these things. And the fourth thing, when the glory of God does indicate, and this is very important, when it does indicate the visible manifest presence of God, it's not saying that God is here, God is present. Because there are many gods that could be present in that Old Testament pagan context. What it's referring to is that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is present. And the God of Israel, Yahweh, he is a God of power. He is a God of unique characteristics in contrast with the other gods. The light imagery is, is representing or symbolizing his unsurpassed greatness. The visible glory of God who is present is the visible manifestations of his greatness, his absolute power, his status as king, his dominion over creation. It's not the God of presence, but the God of glory, the King of glory, he who is unsurpassed in every way. That is the God who is visibly present. So in other words, the glory of the Lord that's being witnessed or seen is a glory that's not saying, hey, God's here. It's a glory that says, the unsurpassed God who is over everything, king of everything, creator of everything, he is here. In other words, you can see it within this breakdown of denotation and connotation. Well, yes, the glory might say there is a visible splendid light that we see. It's referring to his status, his power, his honor because of who he is. Okay, so that's very important. But that's all for God. And for our context, when we turn to Romans, what we're going to be thinking of is what does that mean for us, for humans? Because we are not greater than all things. So our glory is going to be very different than God's. And as far as I can tell, no one shines. Not yet, anyway. Maybe it will happen. So again, don't be bogged down by the text in the middle, that's to give you an example. But we have the same thing. Glory is honor, status, character, wealth, and possessions. And I have there for people, for nations, and for objects and places. So kind of all in one. In contrast with glory as splendor or beauty. Not representing uh, a status. So in other words, you can see uh, the very lower corner down here. I have sun, stars, rainbows, clouds, right? The, the text will talk about them as being glorious or having glory. But it has, says nothing about their status or their honor. It just means they're beautiful. And that's part of the change in language that happens. Glory went from being a replacement of kavod, this weightiness, to in the, you know, 400 years before Jesus comes, with Greek now taking on new ways of, of communicating language, glory now is also including beauty. That says nothing about what it used to be for kavod. 
Within and under glorious honor, status, character, wealth, possessions, we have that which is given to or possessed by, and that which is symbolized by splendor or radiance. And of course, the thing that I want you to notice is that at no point, at no point in the Septuagint is glory ever, ever used for humans that says that they shine. It has nothing to do in the Septuagint with light, with radiance, with brilliance, with splendor. None of it. It's always, on every occasion, for individual people about their status. The same thing will be the case with glorification. But first, some examples. In Genesis 45.13, Joseph says, Report to my father all my glory in Egypt and how much you have seen and make haste. Bring my father down here. Sirach 47, the Lord took away his sins and he exalted his horn forever and he gave him a covenant of kings and a throne of glory in Israel. First Chronicles 29, 25, the Lord magnified Solomon over and above before all Israel and gave him royal majesty, the line of which had never happened to any king before him. Psalm 8, 6, you diminished him a little lower in comparison with angels. With glory and honor, you crowned him. Daniel 7, 14, royal authority was given to him and all the nations of the earth according to posterity and all that says honor, but its glory was serving him. It's doxa in the Greek. His authority is an everlasting authority which shall never be removed and his kingship which will never perish. These could have been any of those in that much larger section. That upper left section I could have chosen any of those, and they would say almost the exact same thing. Glory and status of honor or power authority. What about doxadzo, the verb form, to glorify? The same thing for the most part. And again, this is every single time doxa or doxadzo is used in Septuagint. To glorify is giving or showing or receiving honor and exalted status, wealth or possessions, versus to have or reflect splendor or shining, radiance, brilliance, any of that. And then within, it is the idea of showing visible splendor, uh, that status through the visible splendor. And for the most part, other than a couple examples, in Ezekiel, which actually, I mean, I put in there for the sake of saying, well, potentially, but... More than likely, it's not. The only one that is potentially obvious is Moses' face, right? When Moses comes off the mountain, he is reflecting the glory of God. So, granted, Moses reflects the glory of God, the splendor of God on his face. Of all the times that glorified is used, that is the only one. But... When we look at all of these texts, here are some examples. Daniel 1.20. And in every topic and understanding and education, which the king inquired of them, he took them to be ten times wiser, surpassing the savants and scholars that were in the whole kingdom. And the king glorified them and appointed them in affairs in his whole kingdom. Esther 3.1. After these things, King Artaxerxes glorified I have glorified up there? Yes, good. Glorified Haman, son of Hamadathos, a bougian, and exalted him and set him above all his friends. Isaiah 55, 5, nations that did not know you, nations that did not know you shall call upon you, and peoples that do not understand you shall flee to you for refuge. For the sake of your God, the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Okay, it's for Israel. Sirach 3.2, for the Lord has glorified father over children. He has confirmed a mother's judgment over sons, referring to the status of the father over his children. First Maccabees, 
The king honored him and listened, uh, listed him among his first friends and made him general and provincial governor. Honored can be glorified. It is doxadso in the Greek. The king glorified him. Again, this is representative of all those texts. Every single time glory or glorified is used for humans, it is about status of honor or of power, of authority, something to that effect. So a couple points of, of takeaway. Number one, each time that this word doxazo is used, it's the exact same form as Paul will use in Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he called, called, justified, justified, glorified. Same exact firm, form, excuse me. Every single instance, with the exception of Moses being glorified, humans are appointed to a position of honor or authority. At least in the LXX, the Septuagint, zero indication exists to suggest that a person's glorification is ever about the transformation of sanctity, of morality. In being glorified, humanity is never made, quote, like God, other than the fact that humans are honored to a position of exaltation, a status of rule. Their glorification neither makes them more holy nor pure, nor does it transform their bodies into bodies of visible splendor because of his theophanic presence. Again, yes, Moses, his face reflects the glory of God. But if that's where our hope is, then we have hope that our faces will shine someday. And that's very different than what we typically think of our resurrected glory, right? At least for me, I never just thought, oh, my face will shine, right? I think more of the whole being reflecting God's glory. What changes is their status. In this whole section, I look at everything in the Septuagint. But of course, what's going to be important for Paul at this time, especially when we think of glory, is also apocalyptic literature. Daniel, of course, is included on some level within apocalyptic literature. Um, and then, of course, there's a whole swath of other texts. For my purposes, because that's just you know, kind of unmanageable, um, I took, again, Daniel and just said, what is Daniel doing? But then also Enoch. Um, and for the most part, Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3, is the only thing that really could make us stop and question. This is probably one that you've preached on, that you've taught. Daniel 3 is the first time that resurrection is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. At that hour, Michael, the great angel who stands over the sons of your people, will pass by. That is a day of affliction, which will be such as has not occurred since they were born until that day. And on that day, the whole people will be exalted, whoever is found inscribed in the book. And many of those who sleep in the flat of the earth will arise, some to everlasting life, but others to shame, and others to dispersion and contempt everlasting. And those who are intelligent will shine like the luminaries of heaven, and those who strengthen my words will be as the stars of heaven forever and ever." Paul will quote this, well, he won't quote it, he will echo it in Philippians 2, I think it's like 17 or 18, where he tells the Philippians to don't grumble, don't be like the previous generations that wandered in the wilderness, but shine as stars in the sky now where you're at, so that you will shine as the stars in the sky. It's the one place where to be glorified could be this, or to be resurrected and have this brilliance or shining. But then we stop and think, what is apocalyptic all about? When you read Enoch, when you read these apocalyptic texts, when you read Revelation, you are not reading something, at least in my interpretation, that we are meant to read literally. We're meant to read it as symbolic of what's going on around you. Glory and shining gets used as symbolic for people's status in apocalyptic literature. This even as an example. 
when we shine like the stars in the sky, is it meant that we are literally shining? Or is it metaphorical for something else? Well, how do the stars, sun, moon, all of that shine, or how are they uh, discussed elsewhere throughout the Bible? Number one, it says we'll shine like the stars, not like God. So there's no sense in which God's splendor is what we're reflecting in that resurrection. Second thing, the shining or the brilliance of stars, luminaries, throughout the Hebrew Bible is almost always equated with their rule, their status as the things that rule the sky. So one Enoch, you shall be given authority upon the sinners, such authority as you may wish to have, a bright light shall enlighten you. 1 Enoch 75, in order that they, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the created objects which circulate in the chariots of heaven should rule in the face of the sky and be seen on the earth to be guides for the day and the night. Psalm 135, the sun to have authority over the day because his mercy is forever, the moon and the stars to have authority over the night. And Genesis 1, which is what Psalm 135 is reflecting. God made the two great luminaries, the great luminary for rulership of the day and the lesser luminary for rulership of the night. And again, this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, hence the luminaries. What do the sun, moon, and stars do? Yes, they shine. But within this context, their shining is representative of the fact that they rule over this realm in their different ways. Kings are spoken of as luminaries. In Numbers, a star shall dawn out of Jacob, and a person shall rise up out of Israel, and the, he shall crush the chiefs of Moab, and he shall plunder all Seth's sons. This king is related or, or um, uh, referred to metaphorically as a star. Back to Daniel, the shining of the wise is directly correlated with their exaltation and honor in contrast with their shame. So look again at this. In uh, verse 2, many of those who sleep in the flat of the earth will arise, some to life, but others to shame. Well, what's the contrast with shame? Shame and honor. When we look at Daniel itself as a piece of apocalyptic literature, glory and glorified occur in Daniel more than any other book of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, well, we'll leave that, that for the Hebrew Bible, for the, not Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint. These two words occur more often there than anywhere else. And every occurrence of doxazo in both the Old Greek of the Daniel text and the Theodosian version means giving, showing, or receiving honor associated with the status of governance and rule. That's all it is. This is going to be the background for Paul. His primary background. Now put yourself in the context of those Romans, Roman Christians living in the Roman Empire, surrounded by Roman ideals of glory. Do Roman ideals have anything to do with Shining. No. Roman ideals have everything to do with power, with authority, with dominion. Roman people are meant to try to achieve glory by imitating the acts of their ancestors. Glory for a Roman citizen is having more authority and more power. The world in which these Christians are living in, in Rome, is a world of power, of dominion, of glory. And what Paul will be saying to them, ultimately, through the letter to the Romans, as he does in Corinthians, Philippians, and elsewhere, is that the glory of God is demonstrated very differently than the glory of humanity in this Roman Empire. And the thing that they experience in their own context is exactly the same as the way that the words are used in the Septuagint. But for whatever reason, 
when we have, as scholars, read the Old Testament, we have allowed the few times when God's theophanic presence, the visible splendor, when that occurs, we've allowed that to become the main way of understanding every use of glory in the New Testament. Now, to be granted, Paul has his Christophanic experience. He sees the resurrected Christ, and he equates that resurrected Christ with theophany for good reason. But does that mean that every single use of glory in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, should therefore also be representing light? Yes, in 2 Corinthians, he will talk about Moses reflecting the glory of God. But even within 2 Corinthians 3 there, the word glory is used in various ways. He's talking about the authority of the Spirit and the new covenant versus the authority or lack thereof of the old covenant of the law. And he uses the word glory to refer to these authorities. So, where we're going from here, this is background. This is the hard work, the things that we need to keep in mind if we actually want to understand what Paul is saying in Romans. Especially in Romans 8, and especially in Romans 8.30, which then gives us insight into what he says in 8.29 about being conformed to the image of God's Son, which is to say, to be glorified. Where we'll go from here, then, is to turn to Romans. So tonight, we'll look at Romans 8, and I want to map out for you what uh, I call the narrative of glory throughout Romans' texts, kind of rereading the times when Paul refers to glory in Romans um, in a way that really just isn't out there. And then we'll look more closely at that narrative of glory in Romans 8 itself, and then finally think more about what does that mean for us? What's the nature of glory going to be? When will we be glorified? And how might that look? So that's what I have for today, uh, for this morning, I should say. And then we'll come back and launch into Romans 8, actually all of Romans, tonight. So thank you. Yeah, Haley, um, I was thinking what you said about um, glory and authority, and um, looking at what Jesus said in Matthew 25, I just wondered if this would resonate, where um, Jesus says, uh, in our essentially glorification, Matthew 25, 21, and 23, I will put you in charge of many things, which is the idea of authority. Th does that tie in with what you're saying, Paul said? Gospels. I see this in the Gospels, I see it uh, in, in Hebrews, in the general epistles throughout, in Revelation for sure. Um, that, and, and it's where I'll go as well as we get more into Romans 8 and, um, uh, and, and actually talking about what that means for humans. But yeah, it's the authority that we have um, of what will ultimately say, of, of representing God to the world, representing this kingdom. If we, if we take seriously the language of the kingdom of God in the Gospels, right? the gospel is repent and believe. Not so much that you're a sinner and you need forgiveness of your sins so you can get to heaven when you die. Well, that's 100% part of the gospel. The gospel that Jesus proclaims is the kingdom of God either has come or is near. And then how that gets fleshed out is he is demonstrating for his disciples what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. What does it look like to represent the king within his kingdom? And that means to potentially have authority in different ways. Now the question would be, what does that authority look like? And that's where it's different for Christians versus the rest of the world in terms of how we understand rule, authority, power. For that, Christ is our example. So yeah, I think 100%. Um, though it is difficult to go between Paul and the Gospels. Yes, on a, a theological level, but in terms of trying to be faithful to what Paul is doing, um, still somewhat separate. But yeah, Haley, could you um, comment a little bit about Shekinah? Is it just illumination or manifestation of God's glory? 
How does that fit in? Uh, it, it's, it's both. So, I mean, without going into the text, and I don't remember which is which anymore, f certain times it's going to be literally just the idea of light, of splendor. But there's other times when it's very clearly like God's manifest presence. Um, and I think for Shekinah, if we use that term for it, um, it's, it's more typically going to be his manifest presence. And the light that we see is reflecting that, or not even reflecting that, but it is symbolizing that presence of God. Of course, we can't see God. God is immaterial, it, which Adam and I were talking on the plane. How, we can't wrap our minds around that. Um, I think it's why so many people find it easier to be atheists, because it's so difficult to believe in this thing that not only you can't see, but is immaterial, is entirely spiritual. So if God is going to make his presence known, he can do it through signs, through symbols, through demonstrations of his power, of his character, of who he is. But then, as is always the case in poetic literature, light. Think of the Gospel of John, right? When you think of light, Jesus is the light of the world. Well, sorry, is Jesus shining? Of course not. It's metaphorical for the fact that he is revealing goodness and truth, the things that God is in the world around him, in the world of darkness, dark and light. Again, right, more metaphorical symbols for understanding reality. So, yeah. Hey, Haley, I'm, I'm back here. Oh, yeah. Hi. Hey, I wonder. Well, I, I, I know you're in Paul, but let's. If we could just keep going. You, uh, in the Gospels, you talk about light and glory. I'm thinking about John's Gospel, and uh, if you could comment a little about when Jesus says, uh, "The hour has come for me to be glorified," always that association with the cross and so on. And I yeah. never really kind of made the connection. Is there, is there a connection with, uh, you know, John gives us Pentecost right in his Gospel, in the breathing on the Holy Spirit. I'm just wondering. It sounds like. Uh, is it fair to say that, that Jesus' glorification right away is a status and he already has power and rule and authority over all other powers and therefore can send the Holy Spirit? You know, it's almost like ascension. I don't know. Yeah. Tell, tell it There's a lot about there. John and glor um, glory. So, yeah, I mean, John and glory. Um, uh, Richard Bauckham has written on John and glory quite a bit. Of any of the Gospels, John is the book to look for how glory is used, right? Jesus is going to say, um, you know, uh, stop hounding me. My time for glory has not yet come. My glory has not yet come. My time for glory has not yet come. And then we get, it was the time for Jesus to be glorified. And on the cross, Jesus is glorified. Does that mean he's shining? Of course not. Could it mean that he is brought into the presence of God? Well, potentially. But does it mean that he is exalted, vindicated, honored through the cross, 100%. That's how God reveals his glory. When we think of, sorry, to go to Paul, I can't not go to Paul, think of the Philippian hymn, um, right? How and why or when is he exalted after the crucifixion? Now, actually, I'll come back to that in maybe like the second to last or the last lecture and Karl Barth. Uh, and what Karl Barth says about how we should interpret it, as Barth is kind of, you know, the oddball in many interpretations, he'll be the, the oddball for the interpretation of the Philippian hymn. But I think he's spot on. Um, so I'll return to that idea of, uh, of exaltation and suffering, right? Held hand in hand. But for God... God's glory, God's status as ruler, as king, is being demonstrated on the cross because that's what glory looks like for God, opposed to what glory might look like for the world around them. Um, yeah, so Gospel of John has lots on glory, but it's, it's Jesus' glory comes when he is on the cross, when he is suffering. So thank you. I want to ask about Ezekiel, which is where my mind often goes with the Kavod Yahweh. And if mm -hmm. I interpreted your chart correctly, that was uh, in Ezekiel, we see a lot of theophanic mm -hmm. uses of glory. Yeah. So how do we understand theophany when in Ezekiel, the Kavod Yahweh exits? 
and God exits the temple and the holy mount and the valley. And so how do we actually understand God withdrawing glory in that narrative? Because um, I think that's actually important for us also kind of in our exile understanding. Yeah. Uh, I guess in the way that I think of glory, it doesn't present any issues for me. Rather than God's, rather than the presence, the, the, the theophanic manifestation of God's glory, when it comes and dwells in the temple and when you know, Solomon builds it, they have the celebratory celebration of it, and then the glory of God fills the temple. Um, in that case, it's representing or symbolizing the fact that the God of all gods now dwells in their midst. When Ezekiel has the vision of the glory of God departing from the temple, it is the fact that this God of all gods has, has left, doesn't dwell in their midst anymore. It's the undoing of what the temple was meant to be, what the tabernacle started, what creation was meant to be in the very beginning, which is the beauty of John 1.14. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Right? It, it became this moving temple, God's presence in our midst. Of course, theologically, was God still present? Well, yes, in the same way that while God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, his presence is still everywhere. God's not contained to that place. So it's representing the fact that it's now God's, God's leaving is, is now undoing this really good thing that had happened as they now go into to exile and as the conditions of the covenant are being fulfilled, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will abandon you. I will leave you to your enemies. You'll be exiled from your land. But of course, that won't be the end of it. I'll come back. I'll bring you back into the land. So I, I don't really see an issue with it. It's, it's still the idea that the manifestation of God's presence is being visibly seen to leave. But what that means is not just that God's presence is gone and we can't see him anymore. It's the fact that the God of all gods, the God who is all unsurpassed in every way, he is no longer in our midst. So, does that help? Yeah. Okay. I think yeah. Part of yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, authority is withdrawn. But the God who has that authority, ultimate authority, is, has left his people to go the direction that they've chosen for themselves. But yeah. Sorry. I won't it's okay, be no. It always happens. That's good. <laughs> I want authority. <laughs> I know, I know. This has been great, and maybe I'm looking ahead, but I hope sometime in future talks, uh, so authority in eternity, and how does that uh, diverge from perhaps Mormon theology <laughs> regarding, uh, I know he wants his own planet. I, I don't know. <laughs> But seriously, uh, everything, everything good can get corrupted and, and get, get off base. So I'm looking forward to future talks. Okay. I don't know that Mormon theology is going to come in too much. Uh, but certainly, um, what does this mean for future? Yeah. Um, Thursday morning, I think. Yeah. So <laughs> stick around. Uh, you spoke mostly about God's role as king as opposed to God's role as creator mm. in thinking about God's glory. Do you mm. think it's at all legitimate to say that to the extent that we are glorified, we also have a role in creation as opposed to a role in ruling? Uh, yes, very much so. Um, for me, they somewhat go together. Um, to rule in and over creation is to be part of creation and to produce creation, to help creation be all that it can be, to recognize all of its possibilities and potentialities. So I think they, I think they actually go together. Um, 
I don't think too much in terms of us like being creators. If we think of God as king and creator, we're creators in a very different way than God is recognized as creator. Um, but I think there's certainly a connection. It's certainly there in Genesis 1, and it, and it will come back in Romans as we look at the created order in Romans 8. You can't escape it. So I would say hold on to that thought, and um, you know, probably most questions that you have about us now are going to be covered when we actually get to Romans, and then especially Romans 8. So, yeah. This is the, uh, the preliminary nitty-gritty that we usually skip for the reasons because it's nitty-gritty. <laughs> we want the fun questions now. You mentioned um, the centrality of God as king and as creator. Um, in my mind, though, the most important role for God in the Hebrew Bible is redeemer, hmm. especially in the whole Exodus narrative. Um, how do you understand glory in that context? Same thing. It, um, the glory of God is not just the fact that he is creator, that he is king, though those, and Bachman would argue, are, are the two main ways of understanding who God is. Um, but in the same way that the glory represents his character, his sovereignty, his rule, his judgment, um, his mercy, his grace, his providence, his sovereignty, his redemption. Who is the God of glory? He is the God who redeems his people. He is the God who keeps his promises to Israel. Um, it's just one more aspect of the character of God that is symbolized by this word glory. Um, yeah. Okay, we're out of uh, time for questions.